I'm not a religious guy in the least bit, but I do believe that there is a God because the Beatles existed. Like, I, I just believe that there is some semblance of fate of putting those four people into a room where there's a lot of luck and there's a lot of talent, certainly, but a lot of things have to go right. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. Hello, I'm Jack, and you're listening to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast, an interview show about the Beatles' influence in the past, present, and future across the universe and across generations. Eric Alper is one of the most famous music publicists and commentators of all time. For over 25 years, he's been at the forefront of the Canadian entertainment industry. He's the host of the top-rated Sirius XM show, That Eric Alper, and has over 1 million followers across his social platforms. He was named a must-follow by Billboard and has been a six-time nominee for Publicist of the Year during Canadian Music Week. Eric has represented clients such as Ringo Starr, Jerry Lee Lewis, Ray Charles, Barry Manilow, Bob Geldof, Pete Seeger, Jerry Garcia, Monty Python, Randy Bachman, Nickelback, Sinead O'Connor, Steve Miller, The Smashing Pumpkins, Duran Duran, Judy Collins, Ashanti, Joan Baez, Chris Christopherson, Snoop Dogg, Jay Dilla, The Allman Brothers, Ben E. King, Bruce Coburn, The English Beat, Mob Deep, Ghostface Killa, MF Doom, and hundreds more. So, I'd like to welcome on the show... This guy is the biggest bastard you'll ever want to meet. Here's Eric Albert. <laughs> Hi, everybody! Hey, Eric. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, no problem, man. Happy to be here. I mean, it's pleasure's all mine, you know. Look, you're doing such good work on Twitter. It was like, I have to find out what you're all about. Speaking about doing good work on Twitter, you have almost a million followers. I know. It's in, it's bonkers. And I know like three people in real life. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, I think somebody once told my mom, like, you know, he's got like, half a million followers on Twitter and she said, is he running a cult? Like, <laughs> like she thought I was, you know, I was going to be one of these Netflix series about how I'm going to bring everybody to like some upstate New York and make them start stabbing one another. But no, it would be like, if I had a call, they would be just like, Hey, let's play some, let's play some music and talk about vinyl. <laughs> so Eric, can you walk me through how you first became obsessed with music and how did you get your start on Twitter and get to know so many famous artists? Yeah, um, um, my grandfather had a, a bar in Toronto called Grossman's Tavern. And it was the first time that I really got to see music live as a kid, but also what music brings to people and what it does to people with all walks of life and every generation all converging on this club to listen to blues music and jazz music and it was really um that was my that was my door opening um and i've always loved music since then but more importantly i think for me it was always the fascination of why things were happening in the world when it came to music, what was going on socially, what was going on racially, what was the economy like, what was going on to make that song a hit other than just three chords and the truth, or that sounds really pretty. Um, and when I got a subscription to Billboard magazine as a teenager, I, I loved reading about the people, the managers, the booking agents, the publicists, and, uh, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And like everybody else, you know, no idea how to do it, you know, and uh, 
went to university, worked for the campus newspaper and radio stations, got to meet a whole bunch of music publicists that pitched me on doing stories back then of the Stone Roses and the Charlatans, because it was the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and, you know, pitching stories for Nirvana and Soundgarden and all these bands that were first starting out. And I loved it. And I was like, that's a cool job. That's what I want to do. And so when I graduated from university, I started my own PR firm, having no idea what to do and um, stunk at it and was awful and sucked really badly. But as time got on, I just started sucking less. And, and here we are. And Twitter was just something that followed MySpace and Facebook. And then Twitter was just something to just purge information out of my head, just purge all the stuff I was reading about, all the stuff I was listening to. And I post now the exact same way as what I do when I had six followers. I'm really here for my entertainment alone. Like when I post those silly, goofy questions on Twitter, it's really just so I can have a laugh reading everybody's answers too. Um, there's no grand design to like, I'm going to get a million followers. Like some people would be like, I want to have a number one hit record. Like I just want to have some fun in my life and social media is happened to be a big part of it. So, you know, and that led me to you and now my life is complete and we're done. So I don't have to say <laughs> anything else really. <laughs> All right, Michael, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. Good <laughs> to talk to you. Uh, I'll leave Twitter now. I'll, I'll close up shop uh, and I'll send in everybody on over to you. <laughs> what was the first time that you heard the Beatles? Um, I was eight years old and um, I saw a movie called American Hot Wax. Um, and it told the story of the DJ Alan Freed. Um, who coined the term rock and roll, who had one of the very first rock and roll shows in America. And it was a fictional story. I guess it was kind of like what you would call a docudrama. And they had a whole bunch of characters. Um, and in this, and on the screen with the real life, Jerry Lee Lewis and, and uh, Chuck Berry. And watching those two as a kid was like, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. It was like my mind was severely blown. I had no idea who these creatures were. I loved everything about them. And I went home and I told my sister, who was a little bit older, I said, do you have any Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry? And she said, no, we we have a couple of albums and here they are. And one of them was Sgt. Pepper. Um, and that was the first time that I heard it, which... Um, um, frightened me to no end, scared the crap out of me to no end. It it boggled my mind. I had no concept of any of this music. The week before, I was still buying Donny Osmond, um, uh, Donny Murray album, Bay City Rollers, um, Partridge Family, David Cassidy. I was reading Teen Beat magazines. I was reading 16 magazine, all these about these pop stars of David Cassidy loves you. Really? He loves me. And then I put on Sgt. Pepper and like, never heard a crowd before i've never heard anything before and uh, so that was it and and um after i i stopped hiding in the closet um after hearing a day in the life which like <laughs> frightened me to no end um i i went back and started listening to abbey road and and then immediately almost after that after listening to those two albums for like a week i immediately got a hold of the early stuff and that's what connected me to everything was because what I was listening to then of 
the Jackson Five and the Osmonds and the pop stuff came from She Loves You, Yeah, 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 and I Want to Hold Your Hand, and Let Me Tell You a Secret. And all of the early stuff was really no different of how we saw the Partridge family and the the Osmonds and you know, all these pop bands in the mid 1970s, early 1980s was just, they were really good looking people who happened to play instruments. And that was it. So that's what kind of led me. So I started a little bit at the top, at the end, but then immediately went to the beginning, which I think is how I think most people get into it. And then they just kind of go through the years and they find your spots. Yeah, you know, the the exact same thing happened with me. I was listening to contemporary music for most of the early 2000s yeah. and mid-2000s. And what, what was contemporary for you back then? What, what year are we talking about? Uh, for me, like growing up, like 2009, 2008, yeah. something like that. So I guess the big bands You're such a like, puppy. Uh, You're yeah. such a young class. <laughs> yeah. And MTV was already done. Like it was, yeah. it was then and done. Right. Right. Taylor Swift was big. Yeah. Justin Bieber, Kanye West, right. uh, Lincoln Park was big. Green Day. Yeah. Um, a lot of the hip hop scene was just starting to become popular music at that time. Yeah. And going back and listening to the Beatles, I was like, oh, this yeah. is where the contemporary yeah. artists are getting those ideas from. And, and how many artists that you can connect to that? Like, yeah. it's funny when you know the older I get and people would say to me you know they mentioned cheap trick or todd rungren and they're like it's very beatles-esque it's like i got the beatles like what do i need them for you know and right, so yeah. so so much of it when when people um and rightfully so when they talk about ed sheeran like it all comes from it all comes from them which all comes from skittle which all comes from um you know country music and blues music and all the way down to like 1920s like you know, the Tin Pan Alley and Broadway. And, you know, you, you hear that in Paul McCartney's songs of like the songs of his father and the father, nothing comes from like, everything comes from something like nothing just yeah. comes from out of midair, except for the songs that I write, which are so atrociously bad. It has no connection to anything in this planet. <laughs> yeah. You know, all music has genetics. It all has that family tree. And, but, you know, speaking of contemporary music, which contemporary artist do you find to be the most Beatles-esque? Um, geez, there's so many. Um, a, a lot of the stuff that I listen to, there's a radio station out of Seattle called KEXP, and I love them dearly. And there's also another one out of New York called WFUV. And WFUV plays a lot of Americana folk root stuff but they'll play Billy Eilish but they'll also play a lot of Jayhawks um, they'll play Wilco but they'll also play Aretha Franklin and KEXP plays a lot of like modern stuff and one of the the bands that instantly within like the first chorus was a band called Wet Leg which are from the Isle of Wight and it's made up of two women and they have a song called Chasse Lange and the first time I heard it it was like this is a pure perfect pop song that I haven't heard from a group that is that probably didn't set out to write a pop song of verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus, chorus, fade out, but did it so masterfully for their first time out that I I would probably think that they might have been listening to a lot of Beatles stuff. Um, mm. And so I'm going to have to say what like, um, okay. but also those two stations, it's, it's, it's everything. It's, it's, you know, you look at BTS and that's the Beatles. You, you listen to, you know, 
a little bit of of Taylor Swift's Evermore album and and you know her recent folk root stuff. That's Paul McCartney's first record. Like you listen to Beck's Sea Change, that's McCartney's first and second record. Um uh there's so many there's so many points to those four guys' career that you're bound to hit somebody that is influenced by somebody who has been influenced by somebody who has been influenced by them. Um, And so it all kind of connects somehow. Oh, I completely agree. Have the Beatles influenced your life in any way, aside from just liking their music? Um, it certainly wanted to make me go to London, England more than any other place on the planet that I haven't gone to. Yeah. It's everything. It's, it's, you know, it's not so much on the whole, I believe in peace because of John Lennon. I just believe in peace because I just believe in peace. Um, right. And it's not so much that I smoked marijuana because Paul McCartney did, you know, but yes, I would imagine that the Beatles and Pink Floyd and the Stones and the Who and Janice and, and all those bands in the 60s that I that I listened to surely helped the way that I dress and um, want to want to continue to be look, look, mute. I'm not a religious guy in the least bit. Um, but I do believe that there is a God because the Beatles existed. Like I, I just believe that there is some semblance of fate of putting those four people into a room where there's a lot of luck and there's a lot of talent, certainly, but a lot of things have to go right. You know, when people, especially in hanging around artists on a daily basis, and I listen to their interviews and invariably they will say something like, I got to this point in my life because I worked really hard and nobody denies that, but it's also a lot of luck and a lot of things and directions have to go into your way of things that you don't know about. You know, if, if, if they don't go to that show, if they don't go to church, if Paul misses the bus that day, if, you know, Stu doesn't die, if Ringo decides to say no, like so many things have had to happen for them to be together in the short period of time that they were. They never stunk. They never got through a fat Beatles period. They never went through a whole cocaine, everything I do is great period. Um, John dies. George died, which has everything to do with, I think, the way that the lasting effect. So many things. And I would just love to think that it was all here for the moment that we're all around at the same time. Um, and, um, so yeah, it wasn't necessarily like the way that I dress. Like I never had a Beatles haircut, you know, I was probably more influenced by the way George Michael looked. Cause I thought he was like the coolest mofo on the planet. But like, um, but other than that, I, I think it was just, you know, you know what really does influence me to be honest with you. It's whenever I get an independent artist song. And it's like, yeah, that that's that's really good. I can see where you're coming. Go listen to the Beatles. And actually, I've told a bunch of artists that on a regular basis. It's just, you know, you don't have to start the the songs off with a verse. You can start it off with just one, two, three, four, leading in with the chorus, like the Beatles did. You can have, um, you know, a seven minute song, and nobody will even bat an eyelash because you can have a song that's three minutes of the song and then four minutes of a coda fade out. Um, you want to have um, you know, backward masking in it, 
awesome. You want to, you know, have a song with no chorus in it. That's cool. The Beatles have already done it. So if you ever get stuck with ideas, they, the artists just need to know that that's the inspiration that will always be there for you. And when they're struggling with social media, which invariably every artist does, they just have to understand that Beatlemania was created not in so much as a marketing plan. Yeah, I'm sure that they had something to do with it from the inside. But the fans not only wanted to see them succeed, but they actually helped them succeed. And I think that was one of the first times that the music industry got to see the fan as kind of like the fifth member of anything. That if you arm your fan base with tools of radio, of beetle wigs, of buttons, of concert stuff like they will not only buy it but they'll actually help spread the word about your band and they're the biggest advertising that you could actually have um and it's something that i think marketers should look to as well and how they were able to do it even though that they got ripped off and made like a half a cent on everything yeah i know it's like it's almost as if the fans were the social media back then for them yeah and you couldn't buy it like yeah. you know I've i've heard stories and i know stories of like you know, when Frank Sinatra did a show and the manager ripped up $20 bills and gave really good looking women in New York half of it and said, I want you to go to this concert and scream like your head off because I've got a couple of media people there. And then when you come out, I'll give you another the other half of the 20. Like I've heard that, but that's that's manipulation. Manipulation, right. I think, will only get you so far in right. the end of it. Like the music has to hold up. And I think it's safe to say that the Beatles were able to do that quite well. Absolutely. Have you ever had any encounters with any of the Beatles? I did PR for Ringo Starr for a number of albums here in Canada from the Choose Love album. He we ended up doing five albums together, three solo, uh three studio albums and two live albums and they used to kick off the All-Star tour in Rama, Ontario, which is about an hour away from me. So we used to um, do the press conferences for the world um, at Rama the day before they kicked off the tour. So I got to spend um, quite a bit of time with Ringo and the rest of the all-star band, which was at the time Howard Jones and Richard Marks and um, Randy Bachman and Ian Hunter and um, Greg Page and guys from Mr. Mr. And, and um, yeah, but Ringo, you know, he's, he's my God, he's Ringo. Like you, I don't know. Like, I'm sure, like, I'm, I I know, I know there are better people that have longer lasting relationships with them. But like, to me, all I was thinking about is the same thing as when I got to hang out and work with somebody like a Sinead O'Connor or, or Bob Geldof, people that meant a lot to me was just like, you're Ringo Starr. Like you're in the Beatles. Like there's only four of you and like two of you right. are left. At the time there were three. Um, but like, I, I, I wanted to ask them, so many questions, just so many questions I had. Um, <laughs> and I, I couldn't bring myself to ask a single one of them because really? I had to be, well, cause, cause I think that there's a real fine line between getting the work done, which he needs. And I think every artist is like that, whether you're Paul McCartney or Ringo or George or, or John or, or anything, you have to do the work. You have to make sure that you're not you know, being a, such a fanatic that you lose sight of that you've got a job to do. Um, and that 
the media doesn't really care how much you love the Beatles. If you screw up, you screw up. So at the end of it all, it, it's about making sure that the media gets what they need. They get their interview time with him, um, that they get the, the releases, they get the bio and the photo and they get a safe ride up there and all of that stuff. Um, but I, I couldn't bring myself because how do you even look somebody like down the eye and say, is, is Paul really dead? Like, right. <laughs> I, I, I need you to tell me how all of that really went down. Like, I don't think right. Paul McCartney is dead, but I do think that they might have had a little bit of fun. And I needed to know what those what that was, because I think that's right. all just such a coincidence that boggles my mind. And I've talked to Beatles authors who have written amazing books on the Beatles about it. And they all think it's like, oh, you know, it's a coincidence, you know, Paul had like five different pairs of shoes at the time. And I'm like, yeah, but like, you don't think that like they were just playing into it, you know? But I think that's probably one of the greatest stories in music in the last 70 years is the whole Paul the Death thing. I'm fascinated yeah. with it. And there had been <laughs> books upon books written about it. So I couldn't, I couldn't bear myself. I couldn't bring myself to ask him that. But I did get to ask him about what, you know, what his band is like now and the differences. So, you know, we got to hang out for a little bit. I just, I just didn't want to push my luck. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> so if if Paul and Ringo were to walk in the room right now, what would be the first question you ask them? Would it be the Paul's dead conspiracy? Um, you know, there one question. One question. Um, yeah. for Paul. Um <laughs> I, that's such a hard question. I'm sorry to yeah. put you on the spot like you, that. You, you know, did you see did you see that one, two, three documentary? Yes. Yeah. Um, I thought that was so good because I think Rick Rubin asked a lot of questions that I would want to know about. Just peppering him, no pun intended, but peppering him with with stuff about the making of music and where it came from. You know, how you go from having one or two chords to this. Like I'm still blown away and, and the get back documentary didn't really get into this a whole lot. And maybe because it was just, it wasn't the right album for it, but who thinks of like, I want to create a song called good morning. And at the end of it, we're going to have animal sound, but in the order of them either scaring or being able to consume the animal closest to them that they could eat whole. Who thinks, things of that like right <laughs> I, it would it would sit th uh, look i would be the i would be the worst member of the beatles because it would be like i have nothing to contribute to that how do you go like <laughs> well you know my idea is actually pretty good i think that you know we should write a love song and then here somebody is like let's have a whistle at the end of the album that only dogs can hear like right. or let's all you know, get four people, three people to play piano with one chord and turn it up so loudly that you hear the air conditioning. And my my thing would be like, like, you know, let's not put the name on the album cover. And meanwhile, right. they're just like, let's spend seventy thousand dollars of today's music of today's dollars on creating cardboard cutouts of people that have influenced us. Like they're just zipping on another planet. You know? Right, and so that yeah. documentary was actually really, really good because it 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 showed how he went from just the one or two ideas to let's do this backwards because nobody had those mm -hmm. ideas. Um, so it would it would probably be something like, "Can I just can I just live 
with you with your remaining days and just hang out in your house for forever. I don't know. Like, yeah. cause I think it would just be still very cool to find out what life is like for Paul McCartney. I, or probably I, like, like the biggest, that. the biggest person he has on his iPhone that he can call. Like, who would that be? I have right. no idea. What would you ask? It's so cool. I, I have no idea. Um, right. Like you'd be stunned, right? Yeah. I, I've always wanted to know why he laughs during the song Maxwell Silverhammer. Writing 50 times I must not be. Yeah. Something had to have gone on in the studio where he just laughs and they kept it in, which I love. Right. I want to know what it was. Right. And then he would probably tell you that it's some amazing 20 minute story yeah. about the making of the laugh. And you'd just be like, dude, I just thought that you were laughing. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> like, you know, right. So Eric, a couple of rapid fire questions here. Do you yeah. have a favorite Beatle? Um, Paul McCartney. Favorite Beatles album. Oh, Abbey Road. Most recent Beatles album that you've listened to. Uh, listen to Abbey Road today. Actually. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. I mean, that, that medley is just, it's nonstop. Brilliant! Just everything about it. I know. Yeah, just side two. You know, because I actually do a, a, a because I do a lot of interviews in the media. There recently, it just came out that the music industry just tapped like twenty six billion dollars worth of revenue, and most of it, like eighty percent of it, was based on catalog, and those are albums that are older than two years. But the media is taking it to be like the Beatles and the who, and, and this younger generation is getting into classic rock still. And they are. Mm -hmm. But when I went through the chart today of the biggest selling vinyl records of the year of 2021, like Abbey road and Tarch and pepper were still in the top 10. That's and incredible. So, you know, so I went back and listened to Abbey road just to make sure that it was still really good. <laughs> and it, and it was, cause I only listened to it like once a month. <laughs> Does Abbey road hold up in competition against contemporary albums like evermore by Taylor Swift or, yes. you know, Kanye West or something yes. like that. Yes. Completely. Yes. <laughs> yes. And that, and that's no slight. I mean, look, there we're, uh, this generation of eight to 18 year olds are still going to be listening to Drake and the weekend and Billie Eilish and Taylor Swift um, and Kanye West for the next 50 years. They have to, it's the way life goes. You mm -hmm. listen to the music of your teenage years forever. And when you're right. around 33 years old, you stop listening to new music because it confuses you and you go back and you listen and you never get out of it for most people. But the way things are going and the way that these publishing deals are happening, that Paul Simon is selling his publishing and Neil Diamond and uh, Elton John and Sting and Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen, and they're all selling their publishing for hundreds of millions of dollars. These investors are going to want their money back. And the way that they're going to do it is continuing to exploit classic rock for the next hundred years. And the Beatles are going to be right up there, you know, and I'm going to buy it. I'm yeah. going to buy, I'm going to buy MPL. You and I together. I've yeah. got like, I've got like seven bucks in my pocket. Let's, let's do it. I have a couple of pennies over here. <laughs> there you go. But they're American yeah. pennies. Yes. So they're worth like twice as more. Yeah. Eric, what have you been involved with recently? Have you been working on any projects? Um, the Juno Awards came out. The nominations came out a couple of weeks ago, which is our version of the Grammy Awards. And uh, I'm working 11 artists that got Grammy, uh, that got Juno Award nominations, um, including Colin James and Sue Foley. Uh, working Bruce Coburn. He has a North American tour right now. Uh, working Buffy St. Marie. She has a number of art showings and just keeping really busy now that the world is slowly opening up again. 
That's awesome. Eric, I have one more question for you. It's where do you see the Beatles music in the next 50 and 100 years in the future? Oh, we'll still be listening to it. And your your children, your great-grandchildren will have a Beatles podcast. But it won't be a Beatles podcast. <laughs> what it will be is there will be a chip inside of our heads and that your great-grandchildren will think of somebody that they want to talk to and get the answer and we'll all be able to listen and watch the answer through virtual reality <laughs> and AI. Um, it, it will never go away. It will never yeah. go away. Um, Apple and EMI and Universal have done such an amazing job bringing the Beatles music to a whole new generation where it was pretty dodgy in the eighties for them. Like it was not, it was not fun. You know, Paul didn't put out a number of classic albums in a row and, and, you know, before they kind of explode again on CD, they were only 10, 15 years away or back from breaking up. So sometimes you have to wait for that nostalgia period to hit. And then around the nineties, you had like Nirvana and Soundgarden and all the Pearl Jam and all these bands just bow to the power and the, and the songwriting of Paul McCartney and John and Ringo and, and George. And, and that's, I think when it really kicked up again for a whole new generation, like Bowie, a people that would never, ever be seen with the Beatles album. Suddenly it was cool to like them. Cool. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. This has been great. This is here, there and everywhere. And you certainly are. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Here, There, and Everywhere. Thank you, Eric, so much for coming on the podcast. It was great having you. I hope we can have you back on sometime. Please rate the show and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Beatles Earth. Follow us on Instagram at Beatles Earth. We're here with a new episode every Wednesday with a new guest exploring how the Beatles have influenced more than just music.